Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. This is a story, but it's a story that's not like most Bible stories because we, we don't have names for the characters in this story. This story really happened, and while most of the time the author of 1 Kings tells us who his characters are, in this story, we only know the characters by where they come from. And that's significant. So pay attention to that as we read. Because what he's doing by saying that the man of God in this story is from Judah, while the old prophet in this story is from Bethel, is he's reminding you that the nation of Israel has just split apart into two countries. It was one nation, but now we have the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. And so when he says that the old prophet is from Bethel, he's reminding you that Bethel is in Israel. And this man of God is from Judah. So there's some political tensions here that we need to be paying attention to. The second thing I'd like you to, to note as we read the story is how you feel about the characters in the story. What doesn't seem right to you about this? I'll just tell you personally that my mom read me this story when I was about 10 or 11. And it just shocked me because it doesn't resolve like I expected it to. It's just, it doesn't feel like a, a Bible story. So pay attention to how the story makes you feel about the characters. 1 Kings chapter 13. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of Yahweh to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Now you need to know that King Jeroboam is the king over Israel. And these offerings he's about to make are not to the Lord. They are to two golden calves who he says are the Lord. So this is an idolatrous shrine which Jeroboam has set up and the man of God is coming to rebuke him. Verse 2, And the man cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is a sign that Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the sayings of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand which he stretched out against him dried up, so that he couldn't draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of Yahweh your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated Yahweh, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and eat bread. Oh, excuse me. He doesn't quite say that. He says, come home with me. Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, nor return by the way that you came. For so it was, excuse me. Let's go back to verse 8. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. 
For so it was commanded me by the word of Yahweh, saying, You shall neither eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way, and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told of their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to, said to them, Which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you. I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For so it was said to me by the word of Yahweh, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says Yahweh, Because you have disobeyed the word of Yahweh, and have not kept the command that Yahweh your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him in the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road. And the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road. And the lion standing beside the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of Yahweh. Therefore Yahweh has given him to the lion which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that Yahweh spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it onto the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And, at, and after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for these dear people whom you love, whom I love. I pray, Lord, that they would hear your word this morning, that you would 
open our eyes to behold something of Christ in this story. I pray that we would see wonderful things from Your Word. And may we contemplate the mysteries of Your heavenly wisdom with increasing devotion to Your glory and to our edification. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Well, as I said, this story has always bothered me. It just didn't seem fair to me that the man of God from Judah has judgment executed upon him so quickly while this old prophet who sinned just as badly or worse than the man of God seems to die a natural death. There is some unfairness, it seems, that is inherent to this story. And I think that that unfairness will lead us to see something about Christ, about His substitution for us, and about His example in suffering unfairness on our behalf. What I'd like to do is first overview the story, note some significant things in it, and then move to see why the man of God is a Christ-like figure, and then draw three points of application. So first, an overview. I want to contrast the sin of the man of God to the sin of the old prophet. How do you feel about this man of God? What's your perception of him? I believe that we should see him as a faithful man, a faithful prophet. And here's why. This man of God is obedient to the Lord's call to go across the border into the nation of Israel to rebuke the king of Israel. Now you think about that assignment. That could cost him his life. In fact, it almost does. Jeroboam says, seize him. Who knows what was next? He was obedient to the Lord's call to do that. Secondly, he was faithful. When King Jeroboam asked him to come back and refresh himself, he's faithful to say, no, if you were to give me half of your palace, I cannot go back and refresh myself with you because the Lord commanded me. He is a man who worships the Lord. He loves the Lord. He desires to be faithful to the Lord. And we see this by him resisting the temptation to disobey. And from whom does the temptation come? From royalty. From the king of Israel. Third, we see him resist temptation again when the old prophet comes to him. The old prophet says, come back with me and eat bread. And he doesn't yield. He says, no, I may not return with you because the Lord commanded me. And he is stalwart. But when does he sin? He sins after he is tricked. He's deceived. The text says that this old prophet lied to him. So that tells us when the old prophet says an angel spoke to him, that wasn't true. Even though he's a prophet, he really is a prophet. An angel really did not appear to him. That's why the text says that he lied to him. So it's after he's deceived that he sins. Now how do we say that he sinned? Well, he did have a direct command from the Lord. It was very clear. What he probably should have done when he was tempted was pray to the Lord and say, you gave me a clear command. Are you changing that now? And I believe that the Lord would have instructed him. But he did not do that. What I want to note about his sin is the frame of his heart. When he committed this sin, he was not committing this sin out of rebellion, outright rebellion against God. He was not spiting the Lord and resisting the Lord's will for him intentionally, consciously, and knowingly. He sinned a sin of weakness. 
Now, what's a sin of weakness? Is that one of those sins that's just okay? Well, the text reveals something to us about what a sin of weakness is. It is a serious sin. It's a sin so serious that it warranted the Lord sending a lion to tear this man apart. Every sin then is a damnable sin, even sins of weakness. But this is what it means to be a faithful person. It means that you're not perfect. It means that you do have weakness and that you do still sin even though you try not to. So we want to keep that in mind as we move to the applications later. Secondly, I want to, I want to note the sin of the old prophet. We see in verse 11 that this old prophet knew what had happened that day in the king's, in the king's shrine of worship. He knew that the man of God had been asked to come back and dine with the king. And the man of God said, no, I can't do that because the Lord gave me a specific command. So what does he do? In verse 15, he asks this, old, this young man of God, he says, come home with me and eat bread. Which is exactly the thing he knows this man is not supposed to do. This means that he is intentionally scandalizing his brother. He is intentionally trying to stumble him. Why would he do that? What's his motive? After all, he's a servant of the Lord. He's a prophet too. Why would he want to do that? Well, let's think again about these political tensions. And let's think about the fact that verse 11 tells us that this old prophet lived in Bethel. That means that this idolatry was happening right under this old prophet's nose. It was happening right in his hometown. And it makes you wonder, why did he not confront Jeroboam with his sin? Why did it take a man of God from Judah? Well, when you think about it that way, there's another question to ask. How did the old prophet feel about an out-of-towner coming into his neck of the woods to do a job that he probably should have done himself? Envy is the best explanation for his motive. He is envious of this man of God who has come into his hometown to do a job that he should have done himself. Before we uh, move on to the man of God being a Christ-like figure, I need to prove to you that this old prophet does not stay in his sin. I believe that he fully repents, and I want to show you that by four different ways. First, look and see that in verse 29, the, the old prophet acts with good Samaritan-like kindness. He hoists the bloodied body of this man of God onto his donkey and brings it back to the city to give him a proper burial. Secondly, he puts him in his own cemetery plot. What would it take for you to meet a perfect stranger? Within 24 hours, they tragically pass away and you say, I want to be buried in the same casket as that person. It would take an awful lot of affection, respect, and love for you to say something like that. For you to ally yourself with that person in a resting place in the ground. Third, he mourns over him. He doesn't just emotionlessly put his body in the tomb. He does it with mourning. And we know that there's more than one person there because it says in verse 30 that they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. So there's a funeral going on here. And it seems that the old prophet is leading the funeral. Fourth, he calls him his brother. Now, if, if you and I were in a multicultural situation, 
and we are the only Americans there, we might say that we're brothers or that we're brother and sister in the midst of all these different nationalities. This old prophet cannot mean that when he calls this man of God his brother. Because nationally, they're not brothers. The man of God is from Judah, and the old prophet is from Israel. So to call his, him a brother of this man of God is to acknowledge a spiritual kinship. It's something deeper than just physical descent. And these are the four ways that we see that this old prophet has truly repented. The text gives us no reason to say that he's acting deceitfully. Recall that in verse 19, the text told us explicitly, excuse me, verse 18, the text told us explicitly that he lied. Later on, the text does not give us any reason to think that he's not sincere in his mourning and repentance. Now we want to look at six ways that the man of God is a, is a Christ-like figure. First, both the Lord Jesus Christ and the man of God were men of God, which is the Old Testament's word for a prophet. They both had specific missions from the Lord. Secondly, they were both from Judah. Judah was the royal tribe in Israel, and they both come from that line. Now, it's also significant later on in this sermon to note that Josiah who the man of God prophesies about in verse 2, is from Judah. So tuck that back in, in your memory. Josiah is also from Judah. Third, both the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and the man of God from Judah were attested to by miracles. And similar miracles. Remember, Christ healed a man's withered arm. Fourth, they were both conspired against because of envy. Now in the case of Christ, the Gospel narratives tell us outright that the reason the chief priests and the Pharisees handed over Jesus to the Romans was because of envy. They envied Him. And we've already seen how that's the best explanation for how this old prophet acts. He's acting out of envy, most likely. Fifth, both the man of God from Judah and the Lord Christ were betrayed by a brother through deceit. Remember, Christ is given a kiss of fellowship from Judas. And so the man of God is offered fellowship from the old prophet. He says, come on, let's, let's break bread together. Let's fellowship. And he does it to stab him in the back, to murder him. Sixth, and most importantly, both the man of God from Judah and the Lord Jesus Christ are scapegoats. A scapegoat is an innocent person who takes the fall for a guilty person. And you, know, you understand already how the Lord Christ was a scapegoat. He was a scapegoat for His guilty people, although He was entirely innocent. The man of God also functions as a scapegoat in this narrative. Not because he's sinless, and not because he's atoning for the sins of the old prophet. Only one death could do that, and that was the death of Christ. Because only Christ was perfect. But you see, the man of God in this story is relatively innocent. While the old prophet is relatively guilty. The man of God from Judah has judgment fall upon him. The old prophet seems to die a natural death. This reminds me of an Old Testament law. Deuteronomy chapter 19 is a law about false witnesses. When you have a court case, 
And there are false witnesses. The nation of Israel was commanded by the Lord to give that false witness the same penalty which his victim whom he lied against would have received. What would that mean in this story? Who's the false witness in this story? It's the old prophet. What punishment then does this old prophet deserve? He deserves to be mauled by a lion. Does that happen? No. And this is how the man of God from Judah functions as a scapegoat. To three applications now. First, keep redemption fresh. Use this story as a lens through which to look at the crucifixion again. To look again at Christ's substitution on our behalf. If it irks you that a relatively innocent man gave his life in the place of a relatively guilty man, how much more amazing is it then that Christ, who is completely innocent, would give Himself in our place as a people who are completely guilty. This story gives us a new lens through which to look at the Gospel. You know, after you've been a Christian for a few years, you, you hear every Easter at least the story of Christ giving Himself for His people and rising again. And, and that gets to be Not old, but just it's not as fresh as it was. It doesn't stir up the same emotions. And the Apostle Paul tells us, he says that that the Old Testament stories, these things were written for our instruction. We're supposed to learn things from these stories. We're supposed to go back to them and see things about Christ in the Old Testament. I would encourage you to use this story to stir your heart to see the beauty and the glory of Christ offering Himself as your substitute. There's a song that's popular around Christmas time nowadays called How Many Kings. The first line is, How many kings gave up their thrones? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Think about that. Think about the president stepping down from where he is so that, so that you could be president. Or so that you could have life or be saved. Think about a father saying, you can have my son, you can have my daughter, as long as this person goes free. Remember that that is the Gospel. Secondly, remember what kinds of sin Jesus came to redeem. First, He came to redeem sins of weakness. We've noted already how the man of God from Judah sinned a sin of weakness. He was deceived and he was tricked. And he sinned. He was foolish. This is where context really helps us understand how the Lord views this man of God from Judah and how we should view his eternal estate. The bigger context is is 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 3 is a follow-up on this story. And, and there we read that there is a king named Josiah from the tribe of Judah who comes into Bethel, into this idolatrous shrine, and he desecrates it. He does exactly what was prophesied. He digs up the bones of the false prophets, of the false priests, and he puts them on that altar and he burns them up. And he comes there personally to Bethel to do this job. And as he's there, he looks over 
And he sees a monument. And he asks the men in the city, he says, what's this monument over here? And they say to him, oh, that's the grave of the man of God from Judah who predicted the things that you're doing today, right now. So what do you think he said? Do you think he said, oh yeah, he was a false prophet too. Remember, he disobeyed. So dig his grave up and burn his bones also. No, that's not what he said. He said, oh, leave his bones in peace. Don't disturb his bones. And in so doing, by that action, he's saying that man is a righteous man. He was a faithful prophet. Yes, he sinned, but he is pardoned. So King Josiah from the tribe of Judah is coming on a mission from God. And in that sense, he is a second man of God from Judah. Coming to be faithful where the first man of God from Judah was unfaithful. And in doing that, he pronounces this man of God innocent. He is righteous. The Apostle Paul talks about sins of weakness in Romans 7. He says that the thing that I want to do, I fail to do. And the thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing it. Do you know what that feels like? Do you try to be perfect for the Lord, but you find that you just can't please Him in everything? That you still sin? That's what it means to be the first man of God from Judah. Don't be so harsh in your judgment of this man of God from Judah as to think that because he sinned, he couldn't possibly be in heaven. The Scripture leads us to think otherwise. That the Lord's mercy is big enough to cover your sins of weakness. Secondly, Christ came to redeem us from our sins of outright rebellion. And we see this in the, in the old prophet. We noted that he sins a premeditated sin of envy. And he is intentionally stumbling his brother. And in doing that, he's worthy of a millstone being tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. According to what Christ said in Matthew. But what's his fate? What would the Scripture have us to believe about where this old prophet is? Will we see him in heaven? I believe that we will. We've noted how he repented. Let me show you also that he unites himself to this man of God from Judah. He says, when I die, bury me in his grave. Lay my bones beside his bones. Now after a hundred years, maybe less than that, if you were to dig that grave up, could you tell the bones of the man of God from Judah from the bones of this old prophet? Hardly. Not at all, really. He's uniting himself to this man. He's acknowledging that he is righteous and I have been unrighteous. I want to be like him. So he's putting himself in his same resting place. The text wants us to identify this old prophet with the man of God from Judah. And in so doing, we see that God's mercy is big enough even to cover our sins of outright rebellion. So if you're haunted by those kinds of sins, sins of immorality, sins of getting drunk and doing whatever, sins of greed, all of these things that, that haunt you from the past, remember that Christ's mercy is big enough to cover those thoughts 
those actions. And next time you look that way, or next time you think that thought, which you know displeases the Lord, and you sin a sin of weakness, repent. Repent first and remember how seriously He takes those sins, even though they may be sins of weakness. But secondly, also remember that Christ's mercy is big enough to cover those. He died. He gave Himself. He substituted Himself in your place so that you would be reckoned completely innocent. Unite yourself to Him. Identify yourself with Christ. Find your identity in Him, in your union with Christ. And know that you've been pardoned for all those sins. Third, remember Christ as an example of suffering unfairness. You know, really, we've not solved the riddle in this story when we note that the man of God from Judah was a Christ-like figure. Did the original audience understand that, oh, okay, we, we see that this man of God from Judah is like Jesus, who's going to be crucified in our place thousands of years from now. No, they couldn't understand that. So this story is still an enigma. We don't understand why the man of God from Judah was judged immediately and why the old prophet seems to die a natural death. That sounds unfair to us. How is one person's sin punished immediately and another person's sin seemingly punished not at all? We should be thankful for that unfairness because it's true to reality. It's true to your life and my life because there are so many things in our lives that aren't fair, that we can't explain. Do you know why everything has happened to you? Why has God let this or that happen in your life? Why do you have to deal with this disease or this affliction or this injury or this family dysfunction or this particular besetting sin? Why? Especially when you start to compare yourself to others. Others in your workplace, perhaps, who don't fear God. They don't desire to worship or serve the Lord. But they don't have your problems. Rather, they seem to have it pretty good. They're wealthy and happy. And you just see yourself smitten with affliction week after week. Perhaps you compare yourself with other people in the church and you say, why is it that our family has such a hard time while this family seems to do so well? We'll never have an explanation for that. That unfairness is something that's going to be a part of our world because of the fall. Because we are fallen creatures and because we introduce sin and wickedness into the world, which has to be judged, we're going to have to deal with evil, with these kinds of afflictions, with these kinds of unfairnesses. Christ is our example in suffering unfairness. 1 Peter 3 talks about that. It says that Christ, when He suffered, did not sin. When He was reviled, He reviled not again. But He suffered entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly, which was His Father in heaven. He entrusted His circumstances to His Father in heaven. And He knew that everything was in His Father's providential care. Peter doesn't stop there though. He says that Christ was our example so that we would follow in His steps. He says, you've been called to this. You've been called to walking just as Christ has walked. To suffering unfairness just as He suffered. Unfairness. So my question to you is if you're supposed to example Christ, if you're supposed to imitate Christ, 
How can you fully do that if you don't have opportunity to experience unfairness? That's part of our calling. is to experience unfairness and to imitate Christ. To entrust ourselves to the One who judges justly. To our Father in Heaven who holds every providence in His own hand. In conclusion, use this story as a fresh perspective on what the crucifixion was. It was Christ substituting Himself for you so that you would be innocent. Remember what kinds of sin Jesus came to redeem. Not only sins of outright rebellion, but also your besetting sins of weakness that you seem to not be able to shake. And third, remember Christ as your example. As you suffer unfairness as He did. And entrust yourself to Him and to His Father and your Father in Heaven who judges justly. Amen.